This is Bach Talk. They come together for a solitary purpose. Teachers, doctors, lawyers, engineers, accountants, people from all walks of life. Young and not so young. Professional singers and volunteers. They hail from all parts of the country, even the world. They wait. They focus. They watch the conductor. They breathe as one. And then... these people, these voices that inspire, that stir our very souls. They sing of joy and sorrow, of conflict and peace, of life and death. They move us, they amaze us, they make us pause and reflect, they forget their own individual cares and struggles they have a message to deliver. And then they transport us to realms unknown. Hello, and welcome to a very special edition of Bach Talk. I'm Ron Clem. Today, we'll meet the Bach Society Chorus, a fascinating group of people, a group with many stories to tell. They are part of a legacy that has existed for more than 80 years. The youngest is still a teenager. The oldest? Well, I'll plead the fifth on that one. Together, as I speak... They boast an unbelievable 575 years of singing in the Bach Society Chorus. Even more amazing, all of those collective years have been under the unprecedented tenure of current music director and conductor Dr. A. Dennis Sparger. We'll hear from Dennis shortly. Rehearsal is a magical time. Weekly, these people come together ready to craft their collaborative art, to join in that irreplicable exercise of singing together. As singers arrive, the anticipation is already palpable. And at the mid-rehearsal break, the singers let go, laughing, sharing stories, catching up with each other's lives. So we ask again, who are these people? Over the course of several weeks, we embarked on a mission to find out. Zach Singer, who is one, a fine tenor with the Bach Society Chorus, Zach and I greeted singers as they arrived, or summoned them over at the rehearsal break to our separate perches on opposite sides of the room. I'll identify those singers a little later. With the help of editor Scott McDonald, we want to share just a portion of those conversations. As we chatted, it became clear immediately 
that music, singing in particular, was something they've always known. I was born into music. I think I don't remember a time when music wasn't a part of my life. My mom is Swedish, and I know that she used to sing before we were all school-aged. We would sing every day around the piano and then often send audio tapes home to my grandparents in Sweden. So we were singing. There was a book of songs that we sang all the time, both in English but Swedish songs too. So I don't ever remember a time when I wasn't singing. Music was always a refuge for me, and it was a place that I went to and I, I never wanted to sully that in my young mind. I wanted to keep it for myself. I quickly discovered as I got older and I was in groups and then I started teaching private lessons. Just like love, the more you give it away, the more it begets more musicians and more connection. I grew up singing in a very musical family. They were always singing together. My dad and mom and my, si- my younger sister and I used to even do quartets at church um, when I was younger than 10. Um, my sister then three years younger than that probably. So always singing. I started playing piano at age seven and uh, music has just always, always been a part of my life. I don't remember not singing. We sang at home all the time. My mom played the piano, so we were always singing. In the car, oh my gosh, when I was a kid, we didn't have a, a radio in our car. So we would sing or my dad would play the harmonica. I remember being probably three and climbing up on the piano bench and trying to accompany myself so that I could sing. Well, you know, my parents didn't have a lot of money when I was growing up. And uh, my first instrument, I guess, was a cardboard keyboard (laughs) at home. And uh, I learned to play keyboard first on paper yeah and now was it being carried around like a keytar or is it, it was just <laughs> I, I carried it around in my backpack a treasured possession actually i don't know what happened to that paper keyboard but my parents eventually got a small electric keyboard and i took lessons for quite a number of years i uh, played in the school band and um, i think we didn't have a bassist one time and so i was playing the bass part for uh for Greece, <laughs> which was interesting. Um, now, that was on the real keyboard, I'm hoping, not you. That was the real keyboard, yeah. <laughs> well, my parents taught me to sing so I could sing in church and be able to participate. And then when I got old enough, I started singing in youth and adult choir and enjoyed making friends there. So they didn't really push me into it. They just um, wanted me to be able to participate and be involved and interested. So um, they taught me how to sing. And... Um, it went from there. Both of my parents were music teachers, uh, so from a very young age, I uh, was brought up singing, brought up around uh, students being taught, and uh, sang in church and school and those kinds of things. My earliest uh, musical memory was singing a "All I Want for Christmas Is My Two Front Teeth" uh, in, in a church Christmas concert. As a young child, singing in Sunday school. Part of what we did, we sang in Sunday school. We did Christmas programs every year, singing hymns in church. As a child, I was taking piano lessons. I played in the school band. College, they really didn't have a band, but they had a chorus. So I auditioned for chorus. I have sung ever since I can remember. So my parents um, always had music playing in our house at ridiculous volumes. When I think about now, if I was their neighbor, I probably would not have been too happy with them. But we always listened to a lot of great music, a lot of Grateful Dead, Rolling Stones. I mean, really just fun stuff that we all sang and danced around. It was a lot of fun. And on top of that, I was at church every Sunday singing hymns. And then when I was older, I sang in choir at my church and in my school. And I just always sang. 
I actually have never stopped. Singing started in high school. Yep. I went to a very special high school in Detroit. Uh, my first year there, we did the B minor mass. Wow. And uh, it, was, it was a school where, because kids f- came from all over the city, and this, the school was uh, about a 10-minute bus ride away from Detroit's central hub where all the buses came in, we would all take our neighborhood buses to downtown and catch a transfer and go up to Cass for about a 10-minute ride. But on the way home, the music kids would gather in the back of the bus on the way back downtown. And we'd sing the Cum Sancto Spiritu a cappella at the back of the bus. It was such fun. So I just, I caught the, I got on fire for choir, at, you know, in an atmosphere like that. That's uh, quite a fugue to sing a cappella, by the way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I always grew up singing. It was a part of my family. My grandparents sang in the church choir growing up, and I was in that choir loft as often as I could be. It was always just something that was around me and part of me. So my mom is a dancer and a choreographer. We grew up with music in our house. So my mom composes music. We had musicians in and out of our house. So there was really no choice that my brother and I were going to study music in some capacity. So I actually started to take piano lessons, and the woman who was teaching me piano felt like my fingers, when I was little, were probably not great for piano, right or wrong, and so she had me switch to violin. And I took violin through the Suzuki method, and she would have me sing everything before I played it. And so that's how I started singing. So she told my mom, you know, I think she has a reasonable voice. Um, And so I auditioned for the Glen Ellen Children's Chorus when I was five. So I studied violin and voice simultaneously all throughout high school. And this is in the Chicago area? In the Chicago area. So I sang with Glen Ellen Children's Choir until I graduated high school, and I played with the Youth Symphony of Chicago. I was in an experimental German program. There was an actual German lady who was our teacher. She taught us a lot of German songs and we did folk dancing. And I just remember I was in a district that had probably five or six elementary schools. And so we had an itinerant music teacher who would come around. And I remember just thinking, well, okay, I'll sing your little songs, but I know German songs. (laughs) (laughs) I started playing in the band when I was in fourth grade. After that, my parents bought me a little Magnus chord organ. I don't know if you know what that is, but Um, it was a little brown box and with a little knob to turn it on. And there was a little keyboard, probably about an octave and a half. And then, I don't remember, maybe six chord buttons, (laughs) a little dinky thing. And I was starting to read music. So they bought me little music books. And so I started playing little songs, pressing the chord buttons and picking out the melodies. And then when they heard me playing things that were not in the music books, then my parents said, maybe we should get this child some piano lessons. When did you uh, did singing become important, or was there a time when it was 
more than just fun. It was like, wow, this is something I need to do. Basically high school. Yeah. Um, I told my parents and my piano teacher that I wanted voice lessons. And my piano teacher said, well, that means you can't be very serious about piano. I'm not going to teach you anymore. So she threw me out. So I had voice lessons, and I was quite happy for a number of years after that. I absolutely, I mean, all through high school, you know, I went to, to the competitions, and that was really cool. So people knew me as a singer, and I mean, it was kind of my little my little niche in school, in high school. So, you know, you got to have something. So, it's like, yeah, it was just something that it's just always spurred me on. Everywhere I've gone, I've just needed to sing with other people. My church started off a kids' choir. I joined, and um, we had a change in pastor, and it was quite interesting. They were sort of overly puritanical, and uh, they abolished the choir. They believed only in like unison singing, monophonic singing, and I never quite understood why they got rid of the choir. I thought it was strange, and I think that's why I've loved choirs as I got older, because I never understood why someone would try to take that away from anybody, yet let alone a, a child. So I, I think I've loved choral, choral music because of that experience. I think it was very gradual, because when I first went to college, I was a business major. And at the end of four years, they had just started a new major in music, uh, either conducting or organ playing. And so I had had four years of organ lessons, and so I just went ahead and did another year, did all of the music classes, the theory classes, <laughs> the orchestration, yeah, all of that. So, and I think that's when it flipped. When did this become important to you, or was it just because it was important to your parents, it was then important to you? No, it was uh, ingrained in me pretty early, but then uh, I, when I was a child uh, in grade school, I uh, joined the American Boy Choir, which was at the time a boarding school in Princeton, New Jersey, and so 6th through 8th grade, I uh, was in a boarding school with, that would uh, tour around and teach you uh, your school subjects on the road while you toured the U.S. and the world, so that that also uh, was a great opportunity and uh, got a lot of musical experience and life experience pretty early. I think it was closer to high school when, you know, you're kind of looking for those group of people that you know you mesh with. Those were my people. Singing everything from pop songs to Christian to rock to classical, everything. Those were my people. I mean, all that I've ever really wanted to do as a career is music. I've always really loved the idea of working in a church, which is why I decided to do that rather than teaching originally. I got my first parish job when I was 20 and just kind of kept learning and going as, as I went along. It was always just something that was around me and part of me. Um, but it was something that I, I kind of lost for a while. College came and I didn't major in music and... I just kind of let it slip out of my life. Um, it wasn't until I was in graduate school, my second year of graduate school, that I had a friend who just happened to be involved in a, a musical theater group and, and told me that I had to come and join. And I did, and it was such a relieving and inspiring and motivating experience in my life that year that I, you know, when I started working full-time, I resolved that I had to make that a part of my life. Now, was that just like an immediate, like you walked in the first rehearsal and realized, oh, this is what I was missing, or was that just It really was. It really was. It was 
just the immediate satisfaction of singing with other people, mm-hmm. of singing in a choir and harmonizing and being not just one, but among many. You know, the older I got, there started to be a distinction between people that were really serious about studying music and were going to pursue solo careers um, and people who were doing it as a hobby. And I was one of those people. And you were okay with that? I was fine with that because it filled a space in my life. I didn't need it to be something that I was going to do for money. It, it just brings me joy. What brings you joy? What is it that gives you the greatest joy? I just love music. That's what I do in my regular life. It's just my whole life is, is music. It's my release. It's, I've learned so much about music, about singing. It's, it just feeds your soul. What gives me joy in like this context definitely is like working hard with my friends and producing something beautiful. I love that. The process and the result. Absolutely. What I really love about singing, especially singing masterworks, especially singing old music, is I've, I do feel a connection to everyone who has sung this music before. And when I think about the audience, they are also connected to anyone who ever heard that. And I, what I love about it is they share that, but every person is internalizing and experiencing that in a entirely unique way. I try to be a joyful person and that I have to sometimes force myself to be that. Uh, at our last concert, um, I looked over and my son came to the to our, our concert and, and afterwards he's like, Dad, that's just incredible. And he's a nine-year-old kid. When I was a nine-year-old kid, I was not thinking about choral music or orchestra music and he just said how beautiful it was and that gave me so much joy. That That to me is enough reason to keep doing it. When the stuff we struggle with comes together and then blossoms into something meaningful and beautiful, it's that, it's that working journey. Then we finally arrive at that point where we think, aha, this is it, so this is, this is why we're doing it. The joy of singing, the joy of the, it's, it's sometimes it's a total body experience to breathe and listen and sing and just feel your whole body making that sound and contributing to that overall glorious sound that the Bach Society has. Why the Bach Society? For me, it's that there is such a strong emphasis on both the musical aspect of, of choral music and the mission of performing sacred choral music. Great music and sacred music. And it's a, it would be a treat to have either one of those on its own, but to have both of them in the same choir at such a high level is very special. I, I tell you, and I think part of it is I've been here so long, so I know so many people. There's so many roots here, and there's so many wonderful people in this chorus. 
I am just so thrilled to be here because the bar is so high that I feel like every Monday night when I leave, I have really accomplished something tonight, you know? I love Bach. I don't know what it is about his music that connects with me. It's something on a spiritual level, on a musical level. I love this particular choir, the people in the choir. You'll learn some wonderful music in this choir. It's not just Bach, it's obviously other things. The, the, the choir is extremely active in the community. Uh, they have this wonderful program of outreach and education. The people are very friendly. The quality of the music is outstanding. For me, music is about connection, connection to people that I'm singing with, but also connection really with, with greatness and with inspiration. And you can only sort of feel that inspiration once you reach a level of musicianship. I think it's one of the most rewarding and rich experiences I've had as a singer. Working, for one, with, with Dr. Sparger is just a fantastic experience. Um, but it's just such a really dedicated and passionate community of singers that really has been such a galvanizing experience to sing with. Why have you stuck around this long? Is it Dennis? Is it the music? What, what is it? You know, it, it's a lot of things. I, I, I think, you know, one of the big things uh, is the organization. They have a strong support organization, I think, both in the board of directors and then administratively, you know, in the front office with the executive director. And there's always been a consistency there that has kept, and, and I will credit Dennis with that too, the, you know, as a music director, keeping the level of output of the group so consistent. If you don't already know that you, when you hear the group and then you hear the name The Box Society, you will come to expect a level of you know, a certain bar of musicianship and professionalism. And I think, you know, again, when you hear it, you'll know the difference. The Bach Society Chorus, conducted by Aidan Sparger, with just a small portion of The Road Home. And before that, I Have Called You By Name, the music of the late Stephen Paulus, one of a number of composers who have written music specifically for The Bach Society. More from members of the chorus, plus a word from Maestro Sparger straight ahead. You're listening to Bach Talk. Suppose that we couldn't have any audience. What would motivate you to still come on a Monday night and rehearse with the Bach Society? Would you still do it? Absolutely. I still have the same experience whether anybody's listening or not. It's gratifying to understand that we share that with people, but we, we have that experience whether we share it with an audience or not because we share it with each other. You know, I was in like little living room groups of early musicians when, you know, when I lived in Germany and we didn't perform in any capacity anything like this and it was still fun but it's it's very rewarding to share your art the audience you do it for the audience you want to just share that experience we work so hard week to week to pick the music apart to get everything just perfect to put it back together and to share it 
So to have that, that, that church or that concert venue full of people who need to hear what we're doing and what we're singing and the, the texts that we're singing, that's huge. To know that even one song out of an entire repertoire list can touch one person, that's enough. What if there were no audiences? Oh, would no. you still do it? Yeah, I would, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't be quite the same. Why? It's amazing to be here every Monday and rehearse and have that sense of community um, and to shut part of my brain off, right, and explore a different part of my brain. But there, when we're singing in front of an audience, there's energy that's coming back from the audience. It's sort of like giving a gift. That's how I think about it. It is nice to receive a gift. It's also really satisfying to give a gift that you know is meaningful. And being able to share what we what we're working on over six weeks with an audience feels like giving a gift. But I gotta tell you, Dennis is the real deal. He is a phenomenal director, and every year he gets better. He's very demanding, but in a very nice way. Okay, so, <laughs> but, but he knows what he wants, and we do it over and over until we get exactly what he wants. And that is why we can rise to the accomplishments that we get to. Nobody directs a choir like Dennis. He, he gets it. It's more than just the notes on the page. The background that he brings with the historical aspect of everything, to draw out exactly how it was meant to sound. Getting to work with somebody like Dennis is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I, you know, I've had the opportunity to study under some great conductors, but like his efficiency of rehearsal is very inspiring to me as a as a choral conductor. It's the dedication that Dennis has and his care for every programmatic decision, that he's thinking so much about this balance of giving the audience an incredible experience, but also serving the singers as well, in a way like presenting us with interesting repertoire, presenting us with a challenge. And that's such a hard balance to strike, and I've seen him do it consistently. We've heard the thoughts of nearly a third of the Bach Society of St. Louis chorus. And in the end, they paid tribute to the high bar of musicianship, keen community awareness, and rock-solid stability provided by their artistic leader. Appropriate, then, that we hear his take. Zach Singer talked to Bach Society music director and conductor since 1986, Dr. A. Dennis Sparger. What makes the Bach Society of St. Louis different than any other choral organization? Well, yeah, at my last count, there were more than 40 independent choruses in the St. Louis region. Mm -hmm. uh, they all serve a special purpose, and all of them are needed uh, to serve the, the interests and the abilities of, of singers all over our community. Our focus, of course, is on the music of Bach. Uh, and to sing the music of Bach, this requires vocal training, for our singers, some exceptional musicianship, the ability to blend the voice, solid intonation, flexibility of vibrato. Our singers have to be experienced singing in German and Latin <laughs> and Germanized Latin. Uh, our, our rehearsals are pretty intense. You know, we stop 
of course, every once in a while uh, to lighten up, uh, maybe to have a laugh, and then we get right back to work. So we also need a lot of concentration to go two and a half hours and stay on top of everything we're doing. We also expect our singers to have a commitment to attending rehearsals regularly and, and to have individual preparation so they come to a rehearsal really ready to go. Because rehearsals tend to be more about the interpretation of the music, the final shaping of it, and hardly ever about the learning of notes. Some of the major Bach works we have on a rotation. Uh, for example, we received funding uh, to cover the expenses of performing Bach's Mass in B minor every three years in perpetuity. Mm-hmm. That's huge. Uh, but it's also about who we are. That's the work that the Bach Society began with. It's the work that our founder came back to again and again to perform. And it's one that means so much to us as well. A, a few words about the, the preparation yeah. and execution. Uh, a few years ago, our friend uh, David Gordon was here with us uh, for a week during the Bach Festival. And you know he's, he's a great Bach singer and Bach educator. And, and one of the things he told us that I remember so well is that you don't have to be a Lutheran to sing Bach. You don't have to be a Christian. You don't even have to be a believer. Mm-hmm. But what you must know is that Bach was all three. And that helps us, I think, whether we're doing the music of Bach or any other composer, to trying to understand the perspective of the composer when the music was being written and how it relates to us and then uh, to our audience. For me, as a conductor, you know, I have to study this music, you know, months in advance, sometimes years in advance, you know, look for relationships within the music, uh, look at its overall shape, its historical context, and determine an interpretation um, that helps reveal to our performers and our audience what this music is all about. My goal is to present a performance that a composer coming back to life today would recognize as his own piece. Um, I I realized that when Bach presented something to his audience, they had never heard Mozart or Beethoven or Wagner or Stravinsky. Uh, So what we need to do is try to find how did audiences respond to his music in those days, and then what do we do today to bring that same response back uh, from the singers? That, that uh, seems like a large challenge. Just it is a bit challenging, but sometimes to... it means you know, a chord w- might be louder mm-hmm. than usual, or there may be a greater pause uh, between one little section and another. Um, we may have a little more excitement, a little faster rhythm, uh, to try to help our audience connect with what the composer had in mind for his audience. As a conductor, I strive for clarity and consistency in each rehearsal, and each performance. Uh, I want my singers and my orchestra players to know that what they see me do in the first rehearsal is what I will do in the fifth rehearsal and the eighth rehearsal, the dress rehearsal, and the final performance, with the exception of what I call the 95% rule. Mm -hmm. And that is I want everyone to know exactly what I'm going to do except for what may change at that moment of inspiration when there's an audience behind us listening. And for a good example of that, uh, in our most recent concert that just had some incredibly beautiful music, uh, I reached a point in conducting this piece, this magnificent piece, I realized they don't need me anymore. 
I can just drop my hands and listen like anyone in the audience and just take it all in. Yeah. Just be a, a part of the listening experience. And then, of course, pick up when I realized, right. you know, singers yeah. and players needed to see the downbeat again. That's fair. But it was you know, quite it, exciting. Speaking from the, audi- from the ensemble side, it, it shows that you trust us. I do in, trust. In a way that not a lot of organization leaders tend to. I think our organization just has a lot of trust going in both directions. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the singers know they can trust me, and I know I can trust them yeah. to so, follow through. On that line, then, what do you want the legacy of the Bach Society to mean? Ah, uh, the legacy question. <laughs> well, our founder, William Heine, devoted over half his life to founding and leading and shaping the Bach Society of St. Louis. He was motivated to share the music of Bach with all the people of our community. He was followed by four you know, incredible conductors who continued with the music of Bach and broadened our repertoire with music by other composers as well. My responsibility has been to maintain and uphold this legacy that's focused on the music of Bach and to bring our performances to ever higher levels of performance so we really reach our audiences with dramatic and exciting music. Uh, I, I hope that through my work I'm able to inspire our performers and the audience with significant and meaningful music. Choral music, to me, brings uh, our connection with great art. Mm-hmm. You know, painters and sculptors uh, from a century or two or three or four or five ago you know, have their great works of art in museums that we can go and visit. But our job is to bring to life these great pieces of art from our past. I've, I find in the music we perform, it reaffirms our faith, and it also brings comfort and hope to our audiences. A portion of The Sanctus, from the Mass in B minor by Johann Sebastian Bach. That's from a concert in March of 2022. All musical excerpts taken today from concerts by the Bach Society of St. Louis, with the exception of piano pieces recorded by Bach Society accompanist for the past 26 seasons, Sandra Geary. Special thanks today to interviewer Zach Singer, for drawing out those shy and reserved members of the Bach Society Chorus, and to editor Scott McDonald for creating the audio montages. Participating chorus members included Allison Neese, Alan Schwamm, Andy Greenwood, Karen Gato, Dan Denner, Debbie Mann, Maggie Lowe, Matt McEwen, Nancy Green, Rachel Jones, Rosalind Stevens, Scott McDonald, Sean Neese, Dr. Shefali Wolf, Stephanie McSwain, Susan Niederer, and Teresa Flores. Additional assistance for today's episode provided by Rachel Jones, Isla Clem, and Dennis Sparger. Subscribe to Bach Talk wherever you get your podcasts. Learn more at BachSociety.org.
Talk is a trademark of the Bach Society of St. Louis. I'm Ron Clem.